and welcome to another episode of the Dream Shakers podcast. This is our 18th episode and I am your host, Stefan Odom, here with my co-host, George Nunez. And we have a very, very, very special guest in the form of Sheila D. Collins, who is currently a senior advisor for innovation programming at AARP, a top 20 best places to work for innovators, according to Fast Company. Sheila works within the Nonprofits Innovation Labs Division, which is a part of a broader $40 million investment effort to introduce solutions focused on the interests and needs of people aged 50 and older. Sheila holds an MBA from the University of Michigan and a bachelor's degree from LIU Post, where she studied marketing and finance. Additionally, she has an extensive career in marketing, holding senior roles at American Express, Spotco, J.P. Morgan Chase, and the National Retail Federation. Finally, she has also served as an adjunct graduate professor teaching students advanced topics in digital marketing. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Sheila. Why, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here this morning. Yes. We're excited to have you too, Sheila. And, you know, we were talking about this extensively, Steph and I, in regards to how we first met that interaction at Google and us <laughs> talking like that, that just sparked, you know, a long lasting uh, relationship. So we, we appreciate you for sure. I remember that day. I think we bumped into each other and then I think we were bumping heads. <laughs> and, 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 and speaking to bumping heads, we'll, we'll dive right into this. So um, it's, it's no secret that uh, you're from Brooklyn. <clears throat> that's right, the best borough. And, 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 uh, uh, unfortunately, that's not true. You know, we Steph and I have to represent all the time. We, we got to throw the Bronx up. We got to throw the Bronx up. Um, but talk to us about how it was growing up in Brooklyn and then transitioning into D.C. You know, D.C. Is a, is, a, is a favorite area of mine. They call it Chocolate City. I don't know if it still is due to gentrification. It's not. But, but, but get, 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 get <laughs> not into Chocolate that. City anymore, but sure. <laughs> so I grew up in Brooklyn, the best borough, um, the, the, the place where Jay-Z, Biggie Smalls, Nia Long, you know, uh, they were born. So Brooklyn growing up, um, was, it was always full of action. So when I think about my childhood, there was just a lot of action to it. Um, not always good action. There were, um, I used to go to a lot of parties when I was in high school and I always end up running from the party because there was always a shootout, but that was my norm. So I didn't think about it. Like my household was safe. I grew up in a loving family. We always had cousins who lived with us. So I have Cisco's and Broco's because they're my brother cousin, sister cousin kind of thing. Um, my parents were uh, my dad was an accountant and he also had a tax business and a notary business. My mom was a nurse at night and she always had a store. So everybody who I, who I was around always had a job plus, like they always had their side hustle. And that was kind of the expectation or my mindset. And so I too always had a side hustle or something plus. Like growing up, I used to have a candy stand on my block. Um, when I was in high school, I used to sell t-shirts. When I, um, I end up 
going to Brooklyn Technical High School, where I focused on industrial design. And so really learned um, how to develop new things. And so I also started then thinking about how do I create something else. Um, But after I graduated high school, I had an internship program at Chase Manhattan Bank. And that is what ended up setting me up for success. So I had a scholarship and internship um, while I went to LIU. So I wasn't a broke college student. I had money in college. And that allowed me to do so many different things. The first thing, it opened my mind up to, to, to wealth. Like the first department that I worked in at Chase was in wealth management. And it was mind blowing. I was like, there were people who had far more zeros in their account, especially after the dot than I had um, ever imagined. And they were making money overnight. So I was um, helping with trades that were like these overnight accounts with billions in it for families. And this is when I realized like, we're broke. No, (laughs) we don't, you know, we had a, a working class family did, did well, but I was just like, we don't, I, I I just didn't realize the gap that existed. And so during that time, um, I decided that I needed to do something. So I created a program in um, at the Boys and Girls Club in the neighborhood that I grew up in called Piggy Bank University. And it was about teaching financial literacy. I was like, I had learned a new vocabulary and realized like I was like the world that I grew up in and the world that I was working in were so far different. And I needed to do something to help manage that and help um, youth understand it. Um, So that was my, my foray into the business world and, and understanding it. And, and that's an area of passion for me still is like understanding this wealth I I don't even want to say gap. It's more like a wealth canyon, just thinking about where money exists and just um, how people are even socialized around it and where um, the solutions are. But I do feel like we're in a time where those opportunities to move fast and to do direct and rigorous work in that area are are um, plentiful. And so I'm excited about that. I'm excited about um, the work that I get to do every day and the people that I get to meet who are also working in that space. And I, I think that last point around, you know, the work, some of the work that you're doing now, you know, the, the people that you've been able to collaborate with um, is immensely interesting. But be, before we, we tap into that, that space, which is incredibly important. I do want to provide the audience with uh, some more of your background that allowed you to be able to take part in this opportunity uh, or this this space today. Um, So what we've saw from your background and our experience day and date with technology is a a very frontward facing experience with marketing, right? Um, And we wanted to know especially with, with digital marketing, outside of things like banner ads or email offers, um, what are some of the more unknown ways companies pitch their products and services to consumers through leveraging technology? Yeah. So the 
the interesting part about marketing is all about really understanding who your consumer is and talking to them in a way that they want to be spoken to. And so personalization is is the solution and the answer. And so it's a for us for marketing um that's where I built my career in uh was in is in marketing. And so a lot of the work was a especially at American Express, was around loyalty marketing. How do I get someone to think about this brand when they're at the grocery store, when they are thinking about their flight or buying flights to Florida to go to Disney World? And part of it was making sure that it was relevant. And so I spent time doing work analytical work looking at where are people spending? What are they using their card for to spend on? What are they not using their card for? Who, what, what brands do they want to be associated with? What, um, at, at American Express, a lot of it was understanding, again, the psychology around a person and what, um, and what and how they wanted to feel. Who were they? Uh, it was it, more so than just uh, the transaction. So a lot of it was uh, looking at partnerships that we could have that also help the person who was making a purchase feel like they were important as well as that they were doing something that was helping their environment. So some of the things that we did were looked at ways to help people shop small, which was how do you help your local environment as well as feel connected to what you're doing. So the one of the big campaigns that I helped work on was Small Business Saturday. And so this was an opportunity to help people celebrate their neighborhoods as well as spend locally. This had a twofold work of one, helping uh, local stores get shine as well as help people feel good about where they were, their dollars were. And so that then became its own holiday between Black Friday shopping and Giving Tuesday was Small Business Saturday. Wow, that's, that's uh, amazing. And before we dive into uh, more of your experience, could you explain to the audience uh, what digital marketing is just because like we, we understand what it is on this call, but I'm sure for, for many of our people who are listening, they might not. Yeah. So digital marketing is looking at all of the ways that you can connect with your audience on digital platforms. And so digital marketing is anything from connecting via social to using email, to looking at developing and how you utilize your website, to all of the ways to looking at how we use podcasts and making sure that your messaging, your positioning, the way that you uh, associate your brand is connecting with the audience that you intend for it to be connected to and associated with. And there are so many tools out there, right? When I was growing up in digital marketing, I had the gamut because the gamut wasn't as big as it is now. Now there are special lists for 
each the area, whether it's social media specialists, whether it's voice specialists. So thinking about um, the the series and the Alexas of the world to you uh, to the podcast and so forth, so that you're reaching the audience in the way that they need to be reached and that you're providing content in a way that will resonate with them. Um, when I was growing up, I, I had the atmosphere of social and mobile. Um, but again, th- this was where before the penetration in those areas is as high as it is now. So, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, uh, we, we greatly appreciate it. And uh, now we can talk about your outstanding resume going back to that. And, and we've seen that you had, uh, have had extensive an extensive career across multiple companies with varying levels of senior leadership. Can you explain to the audience some of the best practices involved in marketing a successful, let's say, new product or service launch? Yeah. The most successful thing is speaking to your consumer. I think the one thing that you need to make sure is that they're co-creators with you. So in every marketing um, new product launch that I've done, there's been a deliberate role in getting the consumer voice as in in the development of that product. And so often in the beginning, it will start with surveys around understanding whether this concept is right, what what I or my team understands from it versus what the consumer understands from it. Then it's about bringing the consumer in for focus groups to have them test and play with it to doing what we call, um, I forget the the name, but doing studies in someone's house or environment because you want to see how they utilize it. There's one thing to be like, yes, I am going to use this when I do X, Y, and Z, but it's another thing to see someone in their environment using it and some of the unconscious things that happen from it. And those are the ways that really help shape and determine which product features uh, need to happen during the first rollout versus the second rollout, which things need to get dropped. Um, and so that part is really exciting of having and developing and understanding the consumer voice and understanding the personalities, the different personas that are involved with this type of solution and kind of what works and what resonates um, for those different audiences. Yeah. And I, I think there was a a piece that you mentioned earlier on about how this space in particular has changed, right? Like how there's been so much change within the space of marketing. We saw that you uh, were able to obtain the MBA at Ross. And we wanted to know, you know, given the amount of change, given the amount of, of just new work that's happening within this space, do you feel like the pursuit of an MBA is something that a student should continue or a professional should do? Um, or is this, is it still re- relatively case by case? Like it depends on on who's going after the degree. 
Yeah, I think it's a, a case by case. I loved my MBA experience. In fact, I'm wearing maize and blue right now because I had such an amazing time there. I met some of the most incredible people. Last night, I had um, a, a chat with four friends from from school where we were shooting the breeze on different things. And I was just amazed by the level of success that they each achieved. <laughs> you, you also did MLT MBA prep. I sure did. MLT, that's where we all converged. <laughs> um, shout, so, shout, out, shout out MLT. Shout out MLT for sure. Had it not been for MLT, I don't know that this part of the conversation would have been happening. <laughs> The the MBA felt like a, a, a lofty dream before MLT and MLT coaches kicked my butt um, and really got me in shape for the MBA program, which kicked my butt and got me in shape for a further you know opportunities in life. So the MBA program, what it does is expose you to a network of people from all different aspects of life who are ambitious and who are looking at creating an impact. And so I have relied on that network for so many different things, whether it was projects that I was working on, knowledge about um, something that I was looking to do, understanding how to have some conversations with some senior leaders. I've been able to tap into that network. I think the MBA and I know this from just speaking to, um, I, I work with folks in the tech space all the time, some with MBAs, some without. I can see the difference for people who have a business mindset and approach to their to their company, not to say one is better than the other, but there are certain things where it's obvious to me where it's not obvious to someone who doesn't have that MBA um, that I, I think in business, it doesn't hurt whether it's worth the money and whether you can get that type of education elsewhere. I think that, you know, that that's open to debate. There are accelerators, incubators. There are all these different program, other programs that are out there that I think can give you a lot of those fundamental tools that you need to know. Um, but again, I had an amazing Ross experience. I learned a lot. I had sharp professors and I'm still able to tap into those networks today as I continue to rise and explore different ways to, to move and shake in this um, innovation ecosystem that I am part of and continue to, to push forward. Now, um, staying on that point too, we've seen a lot of change throughout these past couple of months, given COVID and, and all the other things that have been occurring. Would you recommend the MBA program now, given the fact that like it's a hybrid between, you know, in class as well as staying remote and and everyone just doesn't learn um, effectively through the re remote learning process. So would you recommend an MBA at this current time? That's a good question, George. You know, I am the type of person who likes to be around other people. I learn better in person uh, 
I think you build stronger relationships um, in person because there are certain things that happen. There are serendipity that that happened. I, I think the way we met, again, bumping into each other, kind of um, teasing one another, things of that nature that wouldn't necessarily happen as fluidly. I, with all of that, I do think that it it depends on what you're going after, who's there. I think MBA, there's alumni networks where doors can open up a lot easier if you're part of that same institution. I, I think that, again, there's still the, the type of people who are part of that MBA experience that um, you can leverage in certain ways. So I do think that there's still value, but I think it depends on what you're doing. And I, it, it's not... It's not necessary for everybody. Okay, so we, we've got the background. Um, we have now the full framing of what digital marketing is. Mm-hmm. How, how did the experiences you had prior to AARP allow you to know that this was going to be the next step, that you were going to be the right fit for this innovation role? What really sparked in your mind that this was going to be the place that you were going to go? First of all, I was not thinking about ARP at all. <laughs> like, um, when you think about innovation, ARP is not the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> like, um, I moved to DC for love. So I am, as I said, a New Yorker from Brooklyn, love, live and breathe Brooklyn. My I had a tour business. That was my side hustle at, while I worked at American Express. I had a tour business of... Um, Brooklyn, and then it expanded to the five boroughs. My daughter's name is Brooklyn. Okay, so there's love there. My husband's actually from Brooklyn. That he was in D.C. We met, uh, and I decided to move to D.C. In D.C., uh, for the most part, the opportunities are in government and nonprofit. It doesn't. Those are where the the plentiful opportunities are. So someone with an MBA, I was looking at where could I go? What could I do? And the thing that I said is that I want to work on innovation because at American Express, the last um, role that I had was focused on social commerce and looking at peer-to-peer payments and exploring ways to use Twitter and Facebook to to um, create those peer-to-peer payment uh, solutions. And I loved it. I, I, like, I love thinking about how people use money, why they use money, where they spend, that psychology around it. Like, love it. So the next best thing when I moved to D.C. was to go to the Retail Federation because where are people spending money? In retail. And so there was an opportunity to help senior executives think about, again, how do you get people to shop? How do you make the experience seamless? How do you create um, omnipresence around it? What are the technology components that you use to support it? And while I was there, like it was interesting, but it was just, it was more so intellectual um role, but not in uh, a role that had a strategic or execution component to it. So I was like, I like this, but it was more writing content. And I was like, I want to be in a role where I get to produce. Um, I want to be in a role where I am with other uh, 
people who are looking at the opportunities and the the future space and really infusing new solutions into that. And that's when ARP came knocking. And then I learned about the innovation lab. But again, that's not the first place that comes to mind when I think about innovation. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no, you you were going to say something? I, I was going to say, um, it. so we end up showing up at big spaces like the Consumer Electronics Show and conferences like Health. And similarly, like people like, what are you guys doing here? And we're like, <laughs> um, we have to remind them that we're part of the longevity economy and the longevity economy looks at how lifespans have increased and how there are huge opportunities in that. The longevity economy is an $8.3 trillion economy. And so there are so many opportunities to create solutions in this space. Uh, Given the fact that, you know, AARP is largely centered around the needs for members of the age 50 plus club or segment and we like to quote unquote call that age tech, uh, which we want you to dive into it as well. Um, but what then was the appeal of partnering with 1863 Ventures and taking part in the uh, tackling the wealth gap pitch competition, which seeks to support business ideas that fosters financial literacy, uh, resiliency across the spaces of workforce solutions, banking, education, and housing. Like dive into that, talk a bit about age tech. We'll we'll love to hear about um, your perspective on it all. Yeah, good questions. So, okay, let me tell you about ARP Innovation Labs. So ARP Innovation Labs is focused on empowering people to choose how they live as they age. So it's like giving people options. We look at solutions around FinTech, which is financial technology, health tech as well. So we know that health is wealth and without wealth, the solutions around health can be challenging. So we're fostering solutions that make those things possible and make those things possible for the long run. What we know is that oftentimes, if you wanna retire or have a good, healthy life, a lot of the solutions that you need to think about don't start when you turn 50. They need to start when you're 20, in your 30s, right? If you want to retire, we know that savings, having that compound interest in your 20s by putting some money away then is going to far outweigh you putting that same type of money in in your 50s and having opportunities for that. So when we look at solutions, when we look at partnerships, when we look at opportunities to do work in this space, we're looking at ways for for folks who, um, who will become ARP members at some point in life. And then we look at opportunities for people who are part of this demographic already. So what's exciting is that there are 
so many opportunities and there's so many things to solve for. So one company that excites me is a company called Voice It. And right, there is the, you know, voice is huge and opportunities to connect with voice platforms is huge. When we think about the the Lexus, the series, the Googles and so forth. Um, voice It is for people whose voice who have chat voice who have speech impediments and it makes it clear and allows for more people to interact with their um, voice device there are devices that i've seen where you just breathe into it and it lets you know all about your vital signs and i'm like what um <laughs> so there's those kind of solutions but we also work with companies like goal setter and so this is an amazing company that's focused on financial tools financial literacy for youth and it's about helping youth have the right habits and who's helping them their moms their dads their grandmas and so forth so this is also part of uh, that solution you asked me about 1863 Ventures. I'm so excited about Melissa Bradley and the work that they're doing there and was happy to be able to partner with them. We have an event on coming up this April um, with them. So uh, George Floyd and social unrest, you know, the pandemic has been so hard on so many people, um, especially the aging. So when the pandemic hit last March, like the amount of work that we did in the innovation lab, like we were working nonstop because again, um, the COVID and the coronavirus affected the, the older population and and it took a toll on them the most. So we stood up a website in three weeks that was focused on providing solutions where um, you could get local help, neighbors could be part of the solution set. We were looking at how do we create um, town halls that keep people informed and keep people informed of the right information Info, you know there is information out there but you want to make sure that it's the right information that it is vetted information and so we were we had stood up several solutions to help around that again looking at this the social unrest looking at um all racial the the understanding and the reckoning of uh injustice that, that that exists and exists in a big way and at, at some point as i think our organization was wrestling with what do we do how do we address this how do we make create the right solutions around it we stood up a disparities group that focused on looking at how ex disparities were affecting the work and our mission. Like, how do we, we know that these gaps exist, right? Um, we know that for white families, net worth is $171,000. And for black families, it's $17,000. That's a canyon, not a gap. Like, 
is huge. Um, we know that in terms of being able to have retirement savings for white family, 65% have retirement savings for black families, it's 44%. Like there's all these gaps out there. And we know that historically and still today, systemic racism is impacts things that are, um, that are in the way of making those, uh, in closing those gaps. So there was a deliberate effort to stand up an area focused around disparities and looking at how do we create additional solves? How do we put additional resources to address it? And so working with partners who are doing amazing work in this space, who are connecting with the audiences, who are entrepreneurs, who are focused on solutions around the unbanked ownership, um, things around family, those are the solutions that we're looking to solve for and create solutions around so that we can start to make a difference so that our future looks a lot different than the past. It's it's interesting, Shida, because you have a particular outlook on this, right? A, a unique outlook on this. You are currently in D.C., so you're in the heart of it all, right? Like you've seen it all. You've seen the protests. You've seen the marches. You've seen the uh, anniversary of the Million Man March uh, last summer to, to seeing the transition of presidential power of Trump to Biden and also seeing how uh, white investors or, or white people are starting to get more involved in black communities um, and in black startups. Talk a bit about that and, and, and what's your uh, overall thoughts? Yeah. So right now it feels like there's an influx of money from a lot of corporations as well as um, a new set of opportunities that are focused on helping BIPOC founders, Black, Indigenous, people of color, um, people who have not been part of the conversations or who have not been recipients to the funds that are out there. Like last year, um, there's there was a big influx of money in the in the venture capital world. However, in terms of um, Black founders, you know, it, it's only two point, like 2% who who received that kind of funding. Those, that needs to change. Um, I, I feel hopeful. I feel really hopeful that there is um, a new vision around changing that providing the support to help founders of color um, who have who are creating solutions who have the ideas who have the audacity to believe that they can create the change because they they will and they are but need the support need the know-how need the the knowledge that that the people who have had this money who, who have used it, um, have had and haven't been exposed to it. And so I, I have a, a, a role, um, 
in in helping to 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 create the players, bring those players together to 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 unleash that that the magic and the opportunities. And um I, I'm excited about that and just want to continue to see that accelerate and and continue to move um in a direction that brings more people bring helps more people see that they are creators and that their their creative genius can be unleashed in solutions that 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 help more people the ability to have that the opportunity to help more people to to reach more audiences to create products and services that have lasting impact on the lives of members of our community is definitely one that's heavily tied to the access to capital. Um, given that this is something that you realize, has angel investing been a space that you've begun to explore? And is this a space that you have future interests in more generally? Yeah. Thanks, Steph. That's a great question. So yes, I um, this year, last year, as I started to get a, a better understanding of this space, I had set my sights in becoming an angel investor. Uh, And for me, like just thinking back to my first internship at Chase, where I was like, wow, these people have so much money. Like, how does, how does that happen? Um, There's been a long road, right? That's, that's been over 15 years. Um, What, there are certain things that I did in life that has given me a freedom to look into this space. One of the first things that I did or that has been a catalyst for me in this was home ownership. I bought a home in my 20s um, in New York and have seen the appreciation, the equity um, in that rise. Um, And so for me, I know ownership is a way of creating wealth. Um, I've also, because I worked in financial services, bought stocks, had stocks, I've also seen that rise again back to ownership. Uh, It is now where I'm like, I can affect change by supporting founders who I believe in. I am very interested in the space of femtech, so female health tech. Last year, I worked on a product or developing research around menopause and learned that there were so many gaps in the healthcare space around women. Um, A lot of the research that had been done or things that had been studied about women were tested on men. I'm like, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense. In med school, there's less than two hours of training, if there is any training around menopause. Um, and I thought about this area because, again, ARP thinks about the audience 50 plus when we're inviting people to be become a member, they're usually in some stage of menopause. And I'm like, we don't have solutions in here. And so I was able to stand up uh, a hackathon called Hacking Menopause, which was a way of 
letting the market know, letting folks know there is an opportunity and there's a need for solutions. And this was a way of stimulating solutions in that space. Fast forward, now I am uh, aware about startups that are doing things in this space. I'm looking at everything from um, gaps in fertility solutions to to um, ways to understand different health challenges that women have um, in in that area in that zone, and so um, I am putting my money in areas that I believe in, in founders that I believe in, in solutions that I believe in. And it feels so good. Like it feels it like it's not even, yes, I would like a return on investment. That would be great. But it's not even about that anymore. It's about stimulating solutions in this space, helping those who are bold enough to create those solutions move that solution forward. And it's about really helping women overall have the solutions that we didn't even know we needed or have been so neglected. And so to me, it's about, it's advocacy. Like I get so excited about this because I'm like, here I am advocating for the solutions that should have been here already. And it's by supporting founders who are bringing those solutions to the marketplace. Like investing for me is advocacy. I am so psyched and pumped about this opportunity. You you would say then that it's more a matter of taking the step to to minimize the that initial risk for the would-be founder, for the would-be creator, and allowing them the the means to be able to introduce solutions in these arenas that have traditionally been underserved, correct? Correct. So, uh, you know, I am part of Rebel One Ventures. And uh, so another MLTer who started that. And through this, we have weekly meetings and focused on understanding new technology across several spaces. Again, my focus for now is femtech because I want to understand that space. I want to be smart about it. I want to connect founders, investors, people who are interested in it together so that they can move faster in it. Um, but I come across and see at least 10 to 12 new startups every week um, through, uh, through Rebel One Ventures. What are some of the the lessons? Well, first off, yeah, uh, break down what angel investing is to the audience, and a follow up question would be, you know, from Sheila Collins first getting into angel investing to to where Sheila Collins is now as an angel investor. What are some of the key lessons that you've learned throughout this journey? So George, that 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 timeline ain't too far. <laughs> I'm like, I'm still learning and still trying to figure it out. But I was like, let me jump it, figure it out, jump in, learn as you go, kind of thing. So angel investing is investing in a startup that you believe in um, by putting money towards the work that they're doing and having 
some type of equity stake in what they're in what they're um, providing. So I jumped into, and I won't call it angel investing. So the terms I'm still figuring them out. But I jumped into investing in startups through a fund. So there's a lot of different ways now to get into investing um, in startups. And I did it through a fund. And so it was a fund that was focused on femtech. And that was my way in. So it de-risked some of the things that I needed to know. It reminded me similar to investing in a mutual fund where they invest in several companies. What I had an opportunity to do is sit in on the pitch that a startup would provide. The um, LPs, the limited partners of that fund, decided which ones that they were going to. The next way of investing um, is serving as a, a syndicate lead. And again, these terms are all new to me. So um, within the venture fund, I am raising a $100,000 fund to invest in a particular startup. So right now, this is this is my way of investing in a startup that I believe in and inviting other investors to um, invest in them in this particular solution as well. The way that we then do it is that we're part of their cap table, capitalization table. Don't ask me to explain it. <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm, this is all new. Um, and so that's the second way that I'm invested. But I have been exploring and looking at the other platforms like Republic, where you do not need to be an accredited investor to put money into a startup or WeFunder as well. Um, but to me, it's, it's very exciting. What I have been told and what I've been reading is that you, you, you know, investing is risky in general high risk, high reward. Um, that, and then what we know is that nine out of 10 startups fail for what, one reason or another. So it's a, a matter of having enough eggs or, and, and I'm talking about eggs, I guess, since uh, fertility eggs. <laughs> anyway, um, having enough eggs across different baskets so that you're making uh, a lot of different bets and, again, pushing forward something. And, and for me, again, for me, it was focusing narrow so that I could understand the space better um, versus broad. Um, so yeah, still figuring it out, like uh, it, uh, dipping my toes in, in the water, um, but excited about it because again, I feel like I'm helping to move forward what I believe in and the people that I believe in and the solutions that need to be out there. So, yeah. And before uh, we, we ask our last question, we completely forgot to ask this um, and part of your background, like how was it growing up as a Afro Latina, um, you know, your, your parents, you know, being that that mixed blend between black and, and Puerto Rican, how, how was that in terms of that, you know, those grassroots and instilling that into your family in DC? 
Gracias por esa pregunta. So, De I, nada. <laughs> my mom is from Puerto Rico and we had some good uh, rice and beans and plantains and good food. And Spanglish was the language that I grew up using at home. Like one word was basame el vaso of, of juice. Like, like everything was kind of Spanglish. Um, I really appreciate uh, having grown up with uh, those that culture. Uh, my my family in Puerto Rico. We used to visit every other year, so it was nice to be able to go to the Caribbean to see family. I now have my daughter uh, in school in a bilingual school, so that it's easier for her to adapt the language. I also wrote a book um, about uh, being Afro-Latina. I don't think I thought about the term Afro-Latina growing up. I I didn't know that term until really recently. It was just uh, Latina. Um, But now I am unpacking what it means to be Afro-Latina. And Part of doing that was writing a children's book that was exploring the dance that my daughter does. She does. She takes an African dance class and her cousin, who's the same age, who takes a bomba class. And both of them are rooted in drums from Africa. And so in writing that children's book, it was a way to help me unpack like this is so the same. It comes from the same part. You're there, you're here. It's the language, it's the food, it's the culture, it's the movement, it's our color. Um, because of my skin tone, folks, and, and, and my last name being Collins, um, it was always a proven ground. Like, I'm like, yeah, my mom's from Puerto Rico. They're like, prove it. Like, speak Spanish. Or your last name doesn't sound like it. So I felt like I was always in this this place of uh, having to help people understand that Puerto Rico, like, my cousins look like me and my grandfather looked like you, George. And um, those kind of things. Like, that, it is... Um, it's colorful, but there isn't representation uh, on tele and telenovelas and Telemundo and things like that. There wasn't representation, and so now I'm looking at how do we make sure that there's more representation from Afro Latinas and and so forth. But I grew up in um, East Flatbush, Brooklyn. Everybody was Caribbean, so it was just kind of a norm that everybody was from somewhere else. And most people were, most of all of my friends were first generation. Um, and their parents were from Jamaica, Trinidad, St. Vincent, wherever. And so it was, it was a norm. It wasn't until I left, um, Brooklyn and, and, and the neighborhood there was like, wait, wait, you're, you're just, in in my mind, it was just you're just African American. Like no no no, where what what island is your family from? Because that was my no- like everybody was like I'm Panamanian. I'm you know it was it, it there yeah. So that was my norm. Perfect. Yeah that that was a, a awesome breakdown. Um, I too had similar experiences growing up as I've shared with you many times on multiple occasions offline. Um, about like accepting that 
that that weird blend that people don't understand about you. And I wouldn't even say weird. I think it's unique and, and interesting uh, and dynamic and, and learning to embrace that as, as part of yourself, the identity, even though people can't fathom, like, how can you look a certain way, but you speak Spanish? Uh, that yeah. that just blows my mind. So uh, we we definitely appreciate you breaking that down. You got so, the last name Nunez, though. N- that's, N- that's- Nunez. But the funny thing is, people overlook it every time. No, like, <laughs> oh, Nunez. <laughs> or, or people that just see the first name, like, oh yeah, all right, cool. He's just, he's just black. All right, that's fine. So, you know, he he he's, he's black enough. You, you know, people got to give you the the black enough test. Like, how, how, how black are you? <laughs> but uh, you know, here at Dream Shakers, we're all about paying it, paving the way and, and paying it forward. You done that on multiple occasions um, from your piggy bank initiative to being a diversity champion at AARP to, to even uh, dropping gems on this podcast and, and uh, you know, giving Steph and I advice along the way. What are three pieces of advice Sheila Collins would give to a younger self? That's a great question. If I uh, could go back in time, I started my first startup um, in my 20s and it was hard. Uh, I was so excited. I uh, had created something called Hollywood Styles. I was going to bring fashion from TV to people and I quit my job to do it. Um, And it was, it went nowhere. (laughs) It went nowhere quick. (laughs) Um, Or or it, it felt like it took forever. I I I know like looking back now I didn't I didn't ask the right questions I didn't look for mentors I didn't I just I believed I was foolish enough to believe that I could do it which was I think a good start but then I think the next step would have been to find mentors surround yourself with the right kind of advisors um so I would have done that so that's one Two, the the advice that I got from one of my um, college professors and and uh, Professor uh, Sergerina, she she empowered my mind in, in this one way. I remember there was a trip to Egypt, um, and I had wanted to go, and and I told her, but it was it, the price tag was like three thousand dollars, something that was kind of just like whoa and she was like if you want to go you'll go and I was like ha 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 like I don't have money for that and she was like I saw her the next week and she was like are you going and I was like are you being silly I was like I, like look at how much it costs she was like if you want to go you'll go and I was like okay what do you mean by that and she was like did you ask me for money I was like you're gonna pay for my trip um and she was like I can donate to it. Um, and then she was like, how are you going about this? And she was like, did you look for scholarships? Did you? And that expanded my mind. Like I ended up getting a scholarship from um, the American Advertising um, Federation. I did a, um, a, a campaign to family um, asking them for money. And then I had saved up a portion of money. So that was a reminder of like, don't set your sights up small, like really set your eyes big on what you can do and, and have the right people around you. And again, this is all before 
all of those campaigns, crowdfunding campaigns that exist now. Like we didn't have that back in my day. So um, it was the reminder of have have that. The, the third thing that I would tell my younger self is to understand your, to, to share your why. Like I, I knew my why, but I was always afraid to share it because I felt like for me, wealth building is access, it's opportunity, it's options. And um, in my mind, thinking about wealth building was more, felt selfish. It felt, um, I didn't have the right association with money and it, it, it so it, it's something that uh, I, I think I, I'm starting to just come out of this realm of like, you know what, I see it as advocacy. Once I put that label to it, it empowered me in, in, instead of making me feel like it was kind of wrong to be thinking in this way. Um, so I think it, it would have been to get clear about the why, uh, my, my why. So yeah. Those, those would be the things that I would say. Hey, Sheila. <laughs> if I had a conversation back then. But I am happy with where I am now. I feel like I'm in a space of opportunity and options. And I am here to help people get to where they need to get to. There are resources out here. I think there's a mismatch of people and resources, and there's just an opportunity to connect those dots. I am a dot connector, a people connector, and I just want to see everybody win. Win. Well, we appreciate you, Sheila. Uh, Those are all of the questions that we have for you today. This was a phenomenal interview, and we are going to close things out. Thank you again for dropping by on the pod and we look forward to seeing what you have in store next. Steph and George, thank you for having me here. I really appreciate y'all and the work that you guys are doing. You inspire me and I am glad to have had the chance and privilege to be in this seat with you all. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, seriously, Sheila, to, to echo Steph's point, we really appreciate it. Thank you for paving the way. Thank you for having that uh, strong sense of awareness in that, like, you you get it. You understand that Black people are still struggling and, and trying to get into some of the spaces that they need to get into, trying to build up the wealth, trying to um, continuously push and thread the needle forward as well as these conversations. So thank you. And it truly means a lot. Thank you. That was a great interview we just had with Sheila. She came in, she provided her insight, and she gave us a good sense of what's happening across the spaces of innovation, marketing, and angel investing. And we definitely, definitely appreciate her. What were some of your thoughts, George? I think that Sheila hit it on her head in terms of all of the things and jewels that she provided around angel investing, Black entrepreneurship, digital marketing, and how Black folks could get into these spaces. But yeah, I was excited and elated to have her on the show. Couldn't agree more, brother. But with that, we're going to head over into the final segment of today's show, 
And that, of course, is the level up. And today we have three, that's right, three opportunities for you to enter the field of technology. The first role we have is a Future Academy intern role at AKQA. The Future Academy exists to ignite curiosity in everyone and is an eight-week internship program designed to discover and foster the next generation of creative innovators. Over the course of the summer, you will have the opportunity to complete a holistic curriculum, which consists of real-world, cutting-edge work for global brands. You'll also have the opportunity to partake in sprints on client briefs and receive ongoing mentorship from professionals at AKQA. You are fit for this role if you are an individual that employs new ways of thinking, you have a hunger for learning, and you possess a deep passion for growth. The internship will be based out of New York City. Next up, we have a business analyst intern at NASA. As a part-time business support intern, you will assist with business operations of the mechanical systems engineering, fabrication, and test division, including financial budgets, analytical assessments, forecasting, trend analysis, and more. Over the course of the summer, you will identify and routinely use the most effective, cost-efficient, and best business practices to execute processes, and you will continually evaluate their effectiveness and appropriateness. You will also assure that the quality of service meets internal and external customer needs. Finally, you will exercise judgment in planning, prioritizing, and performing work. You are fit for this role if you can work at least 16 hours per week while in school. You are proficient in Microsoft Office skills, such as Excel and PowerPoint. And you are a self-starter with the ability to work independently, apply judgment in planning, prioritizing, and completing tasks. The internship will be based out of Pasadena, California. And the last opportunity we have for you today is a real estate intern at Rivian. That's right the mobility startup. In this position, you will support a regional manager with the execution of new charging sites and target service areas for electric vehicle charging. Over the course of the summer, you will be the boots on the ground, gathering market intelligence, identifying strategic sites, and surveying key local partners. You will prepare presentations to relevant cross-functional teams, including legal, environmental, health and safety, and executive leadership. And you'll collaborate with data science teams to build suggestive travel stops, including, but not limited to, state of charge needed when departing, necessary stops en route, and charging time at each stop. You are fit for this role if you are currently pursuing a bachelor's or master's in real estate management, business, sustainability, or other related degrees. You are curious and you have a desire to learn about the real estate and electric vehicle charging market. And if you have a very organized and motivated personality, the internship will be based out of Los Angeles, California. Now, those are all of the opportunities I have for this week. And I'm going to hand it back to George so you can close us out. Thank you so much, Steph, for that explanation of those opportunities that our lovely people could apply for and get their hands in the pot of tech. Thank you all for tuning in. Until next time, and next time is next time. See you later. That is all. God bless you.